we are in a series right now in the book of Genesis, uh, which is uh, the, the last three quarters of that book, and going uh, through chapter 50, or at the end of the, 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 the book. And we're studying the life of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob later, and then Joseph. And today, we are picking up in the story with some good news, finally, uh, in this story with Abram and Sarai. Uh, we're going to turn to chapter 18, verses 1 through 15, and then look at chapter 21, uh, verses 1 through 7. And I'm going to read the passage for us now. Uh, the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you've come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three... Seeds of fine flour kneaded and make cakes. And Abram ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and made it to a young man and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. And they said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, She's in the tent. And the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now, Abram and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, <laughs> for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. Chapter 21. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son, who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham, Abraham circumcised his son, Isaac, and when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him, and Sarah saw, said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Twenty-five years have passed between the time that the promise came to them and the time that the promise was fulfilled. And to, let's put this in perspective for just a minute. 25 years, you guys, that is a long time. Uh, our oldest son, 
uh, turned 25 years old this January. 1998 is 25 years ago. What were you doing 25 years ago? <laughs> Some of you are like, I didn't exist 25 years ago. That's how long ago it was. Some of you, like, think about it. When you put it in perspective, uh, 25 years, even though for those of us who are a little older, is a long time. How would you feel about someone who made a promise to you for 25 years, kept repeating it too, <laughs> over and over and over, and it took 25 years to fulfill that promise? 25 years. It's a long time. Now, the narrator in our passage begins the chapter by letting us, the readers, know that the Lord is about to appear uh, to Abraham and Sarah. But as they peered out of their tent that day over uh, the, the hot desert uh, and saw these three strangers approaching them, they had no idea who these strangers were. But when they arrive, these three, uh, they run out to meet them, uh, and they show us exactly what uh, hospitality looked like in this culture, which was this enormous thing to them in this culture, and it was something that you were required, duty-bound, uh, to practice. So as they come out, that we see a perfect example here. It was your duty to feed and to house and to care for sojourners and travelers and anyone that showed up. And, and we don't even answer the door when somebody knocks today, do we? I don't. <laughs> I peer through. Do I know them? If I, if I can't see, I need to get a, a, one of those cameras. Uh, I don't answer the door. So we're a little different culturally. Abraham offers a little water and bread to them, but instead they go and they prepare this amazing feast for them. And I want us to see two points today uh, as we look at this, this passage. First is this. The gospel is personal. The gospel is personal. And the gospel changes our laughter. But first, the gospel is personal. These visitors ask, where is Sarah, your wife? And this is probably about the time that Abraham realizes, like, I'm not just dealing with any, anyone here. They, they know her name. He's not told them her name. And the story so far, as we've studied Abraham's life, has focused on Abraham. But today, the focus is on Sarah and her heart. The narrator makes it clear to us that, you know, uh, Sarah is listening outside of the tent and the stranger says, I will come back next year, and Sarah will have a son. And the Lord wants her to hear this. Why? Because I believe, as we read this and study this, that the Lord in this passage is coming for Sarah. Everything else we've been studying has been about Abraham and about Abraham's faith and Abraham's relationship to God and, and the covenants made with Abraham. And there are covenants and promises made to Sarah too, but this time God is coming and he's making it personal for this woman of our faith. It was not enough that Abraham believed. She had to believe too. It was not enough that she was Abraham's wife. She needed to encounter the living God herself. She needed to come to know the Lord as Abraham came to know the Lord. And this is true for all of us, by the way. This is true for all of us. Uh, it, it's not enough that your parents know the Lord. Uh, it's not enough that your grandparents know the Lord. 
It's not enough that you've been raised in this church, perhaps even baptized by me or one of the other pastors. There comes a moment in your life where you need to encounter the living God, where you need to know him, where you need to put your own hope and your own trust in him and believe as Abraham believed, a saving faith. One that has humility and looks to God as the living God. And and for Sarah, this was the time. Even if you're a pastor's kid, I would tell my sons growing up, it's not enough that you're my son or you're a son of this church or you need to know the Lord. You have to hear the gospel for yourself and believe. John and Charles Wesley, you may know of them. Uh, Charles Wesley wrote so many hymns, like so many of, uh, if you like hymns and older music and traditional music, Charles Wesley is responsible for some of the most beautiful hymns uh, of, in, in church history. His brother John was this amazing evangelist, and they did not come to know the Lord until well after they had done things like start a club at, at Oxford University called the Holy Club. <laughs> That's how spiritual they were. Later, John was ordained in the Church of England, and they both went on a missionary journey from England to the United States in, in Georgia, the state of Georgia, and yet did not, they believe, they would say later, did not know God, did not have peace with him yet. John Wesley wrote after returning from that missionary experience, he said, I went to America to convert the native people, but oh, who shall convert me? He felt unconverted. He had no peace. On May 21st in 1738, Charles wrote in his journal about an experience he had and said this, the spirit of God chased away the darkness of my unbelief. And three days later, on May 24th, 1738, while at a meeting, this is a famous account that historians talk about a lot, uh, he has no peace, John Wesley, this man who later turned England and the United States upside down with revival through his preaching. At this point, he had no peace. Uh, He went to America as this missionary, and he fell in love with a young lady and got so mad at her because she spurned his love and, and, and wouldn't marry her marry him and and so he denied her the Lord's Supper when she came for it because she wouldn't marry him that unconverted goober of a pastor right I mean that's horrible (laughs) he then got on a boat with Charles and they headed back to England right and feeling uh, all this fear and 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 crossing the Atlantic back then can you imagine in these these boats and uh and you're dependent upon sails, and a huge storm came, and there were these other Christians that were on the boat that began to sing hymns of praise while they were thinking they might die, but Wesley was so scared, scared to death, and he began to realize, I don't think I know God. So this account, May 24, 1738, while he was at a meeting on... um, a place called Aldersgate Street. And and if you uh, have been a part of a Methodist church or Methodist movement at all, Aldersgate is a a name that is often mentioned. There are Aldersgate churches, for example. He wrote in his journal, in the evening I went very unwillingly to a society, a small group in Aldersgate Street, where one, somebody was reading Luther's preface to the epistle of the book of Romans, about a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, he said, I felt my heart, you may know the phrase, strangely warmed. And his life was changed. He came to know Christ. 
that his sins for, were forgiven, that his sins were forgiven. He now for the first time had assurance that he was at peace with God. They began to preach the gospel and, and a spiritual awakening uh, took place in the United States and England uh, through their ministry. In fact, the ripples of that in some ways are being uh, experienced even literally this week at Asbury College and University in Wilmore, Kentucky, where I went to seminary. There's an awakening happening at this college right now, spiritually, where the Spirit of God seems to be moving powerfully among these college students. At Asbury Seminary, right across the street from where this, this awakening is currently happening, uh, is our chapel at the seminary. And almost every week we sang the great hymn by Charles Wesley, And Can It Be?, And in that hymn, it says this, No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. This is... This is what it means to come to know Jesus personally, to to be the kind of person that that, that did not know him, but now Charles and John had their life changed by coming to know him. And what I want us to see from our passage this morning is this, is God not only comes to us personally, but he comes to us in a personal way. The need for Christ is universal. We all need Jesus. When I preach, I have one message. You need Jesus, and so do I. If you're a Christian, you need Jesus as much as the day you came to know him. If you're not yet a believer, you need the Lord. We all have the same need. It's a universal need. We all, humanity, every single one of us, needs Christ profoundly. And the need for Christ is the same for all of us, but our journey to faith is beautiful and different and unique. I love hearing stories of how people have come to faith and how it became a personal thing for, for them. For example, God comes to Abraham in darkness and through a vision, and there's awe and wonder, and there's this vision of this, this fiery flame that goes through the pieces of the covenant. But meanwhile, God comes to Sarah so humbly as a, as a man that they don't even recognize him. As God, he drinks water, he eats bread, and he asks questions and he speaks the truth. Sarah, you will have a son this time next year. And what was Sarah's first reaction? She laughs inwardly. But it's not like, ha ha, this is really funny. It's a scoff, right? A sneer. It's, that la- it's the kind of laughter like, ha ha, right. After 25 years, and I am incredibly old now. Now, now I'm going to have a baby? She literally says, now that I am worn out, will I have pleasure? I'm worn out. I have felt worthless my entire life because I've been barren in a culture that only gives value to women if they have children. So I am barren, I'm worn out, I'm worn out physically, I'm worn out emotionally, and now I will have pleasure with my husband, and believe it or not, that Hebrew word means what you think it does, unabashedly. In Genesis 18, 13 through 15, look how the Lord responds. 
The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? Shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? And then the Lord says, is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it. (laughs) I love this. And said, I didn't laugh. And she's afraid. And then God says to her, but you did laugh. (laughs) Don't miss the beauty here. This is beautiful. That God himself has appeared as a man a man, and is patiently dialoguing with Sarah, talking to this cynic. He engages her in a humorous way. And I want you to see the beauty of that. Why did Sarah laugh? I didn't laugh, but you did laugh. So, like, and he's not chastising her, I don't think. I think it's humorous. Like, come on, you laughed. Like, be honest. You laughed. We all heard it. Like, I don't think it's, I don't think it's scorn. I don't think he's coming down on her. It's humor. It's like, but you did. You laughed. And, and the reality is, as you come to trust other people you can be honest with your emotions, right? When you really trust someone, when you really do, when you really have the gospel impact your life, there can be an honesty, and, and, and even with God. And she's just not there yet, but she's soon to be there. The next thing I want us to see from our passage today is this, that the gospel changes our laughter. The gospel actually can change our laughter. Why did you laugh, Sarah? Why did you scoff? And... Then he asked her a question. Is anything too hard for the Lord? And this is a great question. And how you answer that question, not the, the Sunday school answer that we all know you should answer, like, no, nothing's too hard for the Lord. But your heart's actual disposition towards this question can tell you a lot about just where you are right now, spiritually, the diagnostics of your heart. Is anything too hard for the Lord? How does your heart respond to that? Well, at this point, Sarah would say, yeah, it would seem so. (laughs) Because for 25 years, I've been receiving this promise, and nothing's happened. The word hard here in this passage can mean difficult, but it can also mean wondrous and wonderful. Sarah, is there anything too wonderful for me? Is there any challenge that's, that's too much for me? Is there anything too difficult uh, that I can't overcome, that I can't solve? Is anything too wondrous for me, Sarah? And at this point, of course, she's believing as a, as a cynical person. And who wouldn't be cynical after all these years and all the trial and all the difficulty? Of course, she's feeling cynical and scoffing. But, she, but the Lord lovingly, patiently says, is anything too difficult for me? Cynicism is often a result of us feeling hurt or angry about something, maybe even legitimately, and then letting that anger and that frustration and the feelings of hurt marinate in our heart over time, and then it begins to affect our entire outlook on life, and we become cynical. And there's kind of a, an epidemic of disillusionment in our society right now, in our age, and cynicism. And it makes sense. 
everything structural, like you, you look at any system, uh, government, Hollywood, the church, uh, in, any profession, the universities, it doesn't matter where you look into society and life and culture, there's been a collapse of moral leadership. As you look in and you peer in, there seems to be hypocrisy at every single layer and level. And it's left many of us feeling disillusioned and cynical. Like, can we trust anything or anybody? You know, name an institution <laughs> and we can all pick it apart. We can find leaders. We can find evidence that says it's a sham. And we start to feel like we can see through everything and everything is hypocritical and it's broken and it's wrong. And it's easy to become a cynic. It's a time when easily we can become disillusioned and lose a sense of hope and become walled off in sort of a self-protected bubble of, of sarcasm and joking and just making fun of other things and people and being a cynic and just scoffing at everything but having joy in nothing. Cynicism is a way to cope with pain and suffering and difficulty and trial. But if you... When you're a cynic, you don't put your heart into anything. Right? When you become too cynical and disillusioned, you don't give your heart over to anything because why would you? It's just going to let you down. It's just going to break your heart. There, nothing is worth investing in. Nothing. But C.S. Lewis warns in The Four Loves, a wonderful book. He says, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping your heart intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even an animal, not even a pet, nothing. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of selfishness, but in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. Your heart will. It won't be broken. It will become unbreakable, and that is the most terrifying thing, he says. Impenetrable, irredeemable. Be careful of a cynical heart because it's dangerously close to despair. And despair is a terrifying reality. Sarah is hurt and angry, and we know why, but God says to her, there really is nothing too wonderful for me. And this old promise, this 25-year-old promise just seems way too good to be true, right, to Sarah? It does. It's way too good to be true. You keep saying it over and over and over, but it's, I'm too old, and he's too old. Now, perhaps when you hear the gospel, even as a believer, over and over and over, there's a part of you that just says it's just, it feels too good to be true. I mean, indeed, it, it does at times seem so magnanimous that it seems too good to be true. Uh, the promise of all sins forgiven. But you know the reality of your heart you know how dark it can be. All sins actually forgiven. 
the promise of the return of Christ. I mean, it's one thing to believe that he came once, but to believe that yet he will come again as he's promised. That seems, if we're honest at times, too good to be true. The promise of a coming resurrection, this is what the gospel promises, if we're honest, can feel too good to be true. And and ultimately, it's the promise of the restoration of all things, new heavens, new earth. It feels so big. In Genesis 21, we see Sarah's laughter change, though, beautifully, wonderfully change from scoffing to a full body laughter that went on and on and on, and there must have been tears. Can you imagine the emotion when she realizes, I am actually with child? That she and Abraham come together, and they actually conceive a child in their old age. She and Abraham, uh, have, they conceive, they have a baby, and when, when he's born, they name him, he laughs. <laughs> they name him Isaac. Laughter. And it says in verse 6, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And I do not believe that means will laugh at me. It's, it's like who can help from laugh when you see a, a really, really, really old lady in her 90s with a baby and she's nursing. It's hilarious. And Sarah knows it. But it's not the laughter of scoffing at Sarah, like, what a weirdo, I can't believe this is, you know, what's happening to you. It's like, this is miraculous, it's wondrous, it's beautiful, it's amazing. It's truly a miracle. Her whole life has now become a laughing matter. Not, not in, the, in the negative sense. The joyful, joyful laughing matter. I have a son. The joyful laughter that the beautiful and unexpected can cause when God shows up and surprises you is something you don't expect. As she nursed Isaac, she would weep, I'm sure. She would cry. She would laugh. And she would say, it's true. The promise was true. The promise is actually true. He's here. Now, what about us? How can we have our laughter changed? It's hard, if we can admit. Life is hard. Life is difficult. And even if you're going through a good time, if you pick up the news, you realize life is difficult for somebody, even billions of people at a time. We live in this broken place. But we also live in a land with promise. A long time later, many years later after this story that we just read about and are studying this morning, many, many, many years later, a young girl who's a member of this same family, has a visitation from another visitor, another angel, and she's told that she will have a son. But this promise seems even more impossible to fulfill because there's no earthly father in this story. A virgin will have a child. Mary's son, as we look at the the arc of the biblical story, he is the the true and greater Isaac. Isaac, this son of laughter, the true son of promise and laughter is Jesus. This son can change our hearts from cynic to joyful laughter. Abraham and Sarah had to wait a long time for the fulfillment of the promise. In Jesus... 
we're given a promise that feels like a very long time too. It's not 25 years. It's been over 2,000 years as we wait. And at times it can feel too good to be true. But because of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, we are promised that everything that is broken, that is wrong, that is, that is sinful, that is sad, is going to be undone and reversed. And that God will redeem all things. This is the promise. It's the promise of the renewal of all things. It's the promise of getting your dead back. Those you've lost, those you've loved, being restored. It's the promise of of you being restored. It's the promise of being you in a way that you've never been yet. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? You've never been fully you yet because you live in this broken place. You're, you're even a shadow of your future self, according to the promise, because we live in this broken place, this difficult place with sin that has affected every aspect of life. Brokenness has, sinfulness has. I'm not even talking about your own personal sin, but the reality of living in this sinful world. Sin has affected our emotions. It's affecting our body. We are decaying. We are dying. Our bodies are giving up on us. But there's a day coming in this biblical promise that where we will be the people we were meant to be as if the Garden of Eden had not taken place in Genesis 3 and we never left the Garden. We have a promise that we're going back to the garden, but an even greater garden because God is going to redeem and restore everything that is broken and that is wrong. There'll be no more lies. Therefore, no more disillusionment. You don't need to be cynical any longer because there'll be no betrayal or heartache or letdown, no hypocrisy. Andrew Byers writes, Rather than idealism, which is equally problematic as cynicism, rather than idealism or cynicism, we must embrace hopeful realism. This is a perspective that embraces the dual realities of contemporary evil. Let's call it what it is. We live in an evil, difficult place. There's no denying it. It's a perspective that embraces the dual realities of a contemporary evil and a forthcoming redemption. It lives in the tension of a groaning creation that's longing, as Paul says in in Romans chapter 1, for the full redemption of all things. Uh, Tension of groaning creation and its imminent restoration. Idealists claim that we are in the suburbs of Eden. That if you just believe enough, if you just give enough, if you're just faithful enough... Everything you've ever wanted is going to happen to you, but that's not the place we live in. Idealists claim that we're in the suburbs of Eden. Cynics claim that Eden is a farce. Hopeful realists claim with joy that a new Eden looms just around the corner and that fresh green sprouts faintly push up through the cracks and crevices even now. If we truly embrace the biblical teaching that new creation is in the works and on the way, then a daring hopefulness will infuse our experience of daily reality, even when that reality is steeped in the broken mess of this old age, kicking and screaming in its waning hour. This is the hope that we have. 
This is the hope that we have. And, and we wait like Sarah and Abraham had to wait. And it's not easy. But let's reject idealism on the one hand, a thin, shallow faith. But let's also reject cynicism and live with a joyful laughter that in spite of the pain and the suffering, God's going to redeem it. And there's going to be a day when we're going to see each other face to face and say it was all true. Look, it's all true. Everything he promised is true. Let's pray. Father, we long for that day. And at times it does feel too good to be true, but oh Lord, with hopeful realism, we look to you to make these promises a reality. Our hearts all long for this to be true, even if we're not yet a, a follower of yours or believe we all want this to be true. We would all love for this to be true, Father, and help us to cling to you by faith, believing that it is. And would you bring laughter and joy into this dark place at times and give us joy and hope even in the midst of, of these trials in these moments. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.